I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I talk with Gail Eukokas about her new book, Misogyny, The New Activism. Isn't that nice? In this episode, I have a conversation with author and professor Gail Eukokas about her new book titled Misogyny, The New Activism. You know, it's one of the few books I've read on the subject that not only gives historical examples of misogyny, but it also provides action items for fighting them. And also, I just want to give you a quick warning. We had some audio issues with this episode, so it's a bit shorter than my usual episodes. But if you want to go deeper into this topic, I'd like to recommend that you go back to episode 13. And that was a conversation with philosopher and author Kate Mann. Kate Mann wrote the book Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny. And at the time, I said that Down Girl would become a feminist classic, you know, a staple in philosophical and feminist literature. And it has. So if you want to listen to that episode, it's episode 13. And that's at electorette.com slash 13, the number 13. And I'll also put that in the show notes. But here's my episode with Gail Eukokas, where we talk about everything from Hugh Hefner to Christine Blasey Ford. Enjoy. Gail Eukokas, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So I love the way the book is structured because you go a bit beyond the explanations and examples, like historical examples of what misogyny is. You give a set of action items, which is, you know, I guess how the book was intended to be structured. So why do you think that that was needed, you know, in this, you know, our library of books about misogyny? Where there's so many excellent books about misogyny and sexism, but the actual thing of what am I going to do about it? And if you remember the Women's March right after the presidential election, where I thought, boy, all these hundreds and thousands of women, you know, what's the next step? So I was brainstorming. Of course, everybody has different gifts to offer. You know, hopefully my gift is writing. Other people will be organizing or reaching out and just saying, how can we utilize our gifts to advance the cause? You know, I feel like generally after the 2016 election and just, I guess, over the past, you know, five, 10 years, not even that long, I feel like just generally the general public is smarter about spotting misogyny, especially in the media and just about talking about it, you know, but I feel like often with people who are outside of advocacy, I feel as if that's where it stops, right? No one really knows what to do beyond, you know, spotting it and describing it. Is that, do you feel that too? Uh, Absolutely. And again, there's one thing to post something on Facebook and say, oh, that's all I'm going to do about it. But I think one reason why people don't advocate is they really don't believe in their power. And, you know, there is so much unharnessed power people have. And that's why I try to write the book as a book of hope to really encourage people, you know, don't despair. I've been through my times of local depression. And in fact, the story of how this book came out was after the 2016 election, um, I had scheduled to go to a social work conference that day, but instead I was, I was too depressed to move. You know, I, I just suddenly it hit me what, what had happened. And that afternoon, I got a text from my editor saying, Gail, do you want to write a book about fighting misogyny? And uh, I said, yes. <laughs> you know, I just absolutely felt so... Um, saying that this is my way of fighting back. And hopefully people will find something in that book to help them fight back too. You know how many times I've heard that after the election, you know, people were depressed in various ways, you know, um, and, and for me, and I think I've, I've heard this from a few people, there was a delay, right? Kind of a, a period of disbelief, Absolutely. you know? Yeah. And the 2018 elections were very, very encouraging for me. We just had a wide diversity of candidates. Yeah, exactly. You know, one of the stories I remember from the book most was um, a story of an older woman. She was in her 70s and she told her story of when she was younger and she was 
was asked out to dinner by a, a married man. Mm -hmm. Right. You know which story I'm referring to. And she, you know, got the courage up to say no. And when she finally rebuffed him, you know, he said, you know, well, you know, don't be silly. Basically, you know, we both have to eat. He tried to downplay his advance. Mm -hmm. And she said that that made her feel small. You know, and I and I like that story. I don't like it necessarily. But I think that story is important because it points to the subtlety sometimes of these interactions. Right. And tell me if this is correct or not. Is this an example of misogyny or just some guy trying to save face? Well, I really believe that he was part of the misogynistic culture. You know, the, the title of that piece was He Made Me Feel So Small. And that's the whole point of misogyny and racism and all the other forms of discrimination is to make you feel small, to make you feel foolish or stupid. And so you don't speak out. And the idea that it left an impact on her 50 years later really struck me. I said, wow, she felt so humiliated at that moment. And, you know, you, you expand that to a domestic violence situation where the person who's been attacked will say, hey, you attacked me. And then she gets minimized or saying, oh, you're just being a baby. It really wasn't serious. I think that he was trying to define her reality. And she was right the first place. It was a sexual advance. But then his denying it was saying, no, you're the idiot. That's what I liked about that story was that, you know, illustrates it was a very small event. And as she said, it was nothing compared to these stories of these other women. But the idea that the same impulse of the misogynist is to make you feel small. Yeah. You know, in, in reading that chapter in your book, for some reason, I was reminded of Christine Blasey Ford and the way she was treated, you know, by some people, you know, in this attempt to discredit and diminish her. You know, she was mocked by Trump. And you know, I remember him saying at a rally, you know, she can't remember this or she can't remember that. And I'm not comparing their experiences, right? I'm not comparing Ford's experience with the woman in your book, you know, who was asked on a date, you know, but I, but I am comparing the dismissal of it, you know, diminishing it as being less than it actually was. You know, I think that's a pattern of silencing women that you see a lot, you know, and I think the story was a reminder that it can even happen in, in small ways and in small ways that stick with you for decades. Like in this woman's case, it's a very specific form of gaslighting, I think, that happens when women try to report sexual assault or sexual harassment or in this case, you know, something that happens in the context of a power differential, like this woman, you know, being put in a position of rebuffing her boss's romantic advances, you know, and then being told, you know, it's in your head, you know, what's wrong with you? So, you know, sure, you know, he could have been saving face, but it was in a really kind of gaslighty way. Absolutely. And um, when I used to teach women's issues, I'd actually show that movie. Uh, I don't know if people really know the background for that movie, but it's a wonderful movie, Ingrid Bergman. But basically, she's married to a man who's trying to convince her that she's going insane so he can lock her up and get her money. And uh, one of the things he does is there's actually a gaslight. You know, this was so, you know, about 100 years ago. And she would see the lights dim. And he and the servants would say, no, the lights aren't any dimmer. You're imagining things. And that's what the origin is of trying to deny someone's reality. Right. You know, in one of the one of the chapters in your book, you talk about human trafficking and, you know, that as a form of misogyny. And yes, one thing uh -huh. that I noticed just kind of an, an aside is that people often conflate sex work with human trafficking, um, which which they shouldn't do. Right. Um, but I guess my question around that is that, you know, one of the action items in your book is to focus on the men who 
who are, you know, using women who are in, or, you know, not necessarily even women, but people who are victims of human trafficking, focusing on them in the criminalization of it, right? Rather than focusing on the women. How do we get to a point where we actually punish women who are caught up in the system? Um, I think punishing women who are out in the public sphere, women are punished for being virgins, they're punished for being prostitutes, they're punished for being mothers, they're punished for not being mothers. You know, you can also see in that wider context. The customers usually get off scot-free. And you do bring up the difficult policy question of voluntary sex work, which should be legal or should be condoned as opposed to the involuntary, the trafficking. Is it possible to separate it? How do you try to separate it so the wrong people don't get punished? Right, right. You know, that's a really interesting question. And I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. I've been thinking about this a lot in the whole context of, you know, the direction we're moving. You know, we, of course, women should have autonomy to choose to do whatever they want to do, even if that that work is sex work. But then I wonder, in the larger patriarchal system, even if you actually make the choice to work as a sex worker, how much choice do you actually have? How much would that industry plummet if women were given equal pay, right? Like if women were equally represented as executives or politicians, right? Well, you actually bring up that point in Scandinavian countries where there's a lot more equality of pay and a really strong social service system. According to the sex tourist blogs that I was researching, they were complaining they couldn't find any prostitutes there, that they always prefer to go to the poorer countries. And it's so definitely economic exploitation, either by the corporations or through prostitution. I mean, they go hand in hand. Yeah. So one other interesting point in your book, you you talk about Hugh Hefner, right? And, and you talk about that a lot. And I'm glad you did, because I, I feel like he is still romanticized in the media. Is that true? And can you talk a bit about that section of your book and what you were trying to highlight? Um, I grew up with, I mean, play, the Playboy culture started around the time I was a kid. So I've always grown up with that. The Playboy culture was always, you know, seen as mainstream and as okay, and you're a, a prude or there's something wrong with you if you oppose the cute little bunny look. The first time I heard about something negative about Hugh Hefner, ironically, was before Gloria Steinem became a feminist, she worked as a Playboy bunny. And her essay about it was talking about the high heel shoes and how it messed up her feet to be hours and hours standing with the high heel shoes. And as somebody with my own physical disabilities, I really related to that. One of the links you make in the book with Hugh Hefner is his philosophy around sex culture and HIV, right? You know, he promoted this kind of condom-free lifestyle, you know, and, and in hindsight, we know how dangerous that is. And I think, you know, that was a misuse of his power and influence at the expense of the health and lives of women who came to the mansion or anyone who came to the mansion for that matter. You know, his pleasure and the pleasure of his male guests was his priority. So can you talk about the connection that you lay out in this chapter he really supported not having condoms at the Playboy Mansion. And part of the Playboy ideal of you know somebody in a lounge suit dressed very comfortably while the woman would have to wear really uncomfortable clothes, the whole thing is I have the right not to wear a condom. Well, at the peak of the HIV epidemic before the meds came out in the, in the later 90s, he was reporting saying, oh, no, I don't use condoms. And, and he goes, you know, that's not a problem with us because, you know, he was basically implying that only gay men had to worry about it, which by then everyone knew it was uh, heterosexuals. I mean, anybody could get the HIV. It's just depending on the sexual contact. You know, one of the things that's 
that's always bothered me was this kind of chummy relationship that Hafner had with the media. And I remember these soft focus interviews with him, these kind of, you know, lighthearted interviews where the interviewer would never really address any of the seriousness of, you know, the culture where he, you know, promoted this power dynamic that existed in the mansion. But, you know, how much agency can a woman really exercise in those circumstances in a culture where if it weren't for that power imbalance, you know, someone like Hugh Hefner, you know, having all of that money and having all of that social power and all of that political power, you know, how much agency do they really have or did they really have? I remember reporters sitting across from Hefner, you know, while he was wearing these, you know, silk sex robes and the women were wearing these incredibly high heels and these uncomfortable corsets, you know, and he just looked like he was ready to have sex at, at any moment. So I want to talk about shift a bit to politics and the women who are running right now where we started, because you talk about ways in which women are silenced. And you mentioned a story in, in the book about Fanny Wright, you know, who was a British born activist who went on a tour of the U.S. It was the mid um, 19th century, around 1829, 1830. She went on a tour, a speaking tour of the U.S. to speak out against slavery. And she was kind of mocked, right? She was mocked in a way where people wouldn't want to listen to her, right? Can you talk about that story and then talk about how you see that happening today? I didn't really know anything about Fanny Wright, but I was going through Library of Congress pictures for my book. And I came across that cartoon of her being dressed as a goose, like she's uh, gabbling away like a goose. And I found that, you know, shortly after uh, Hillary ran for office and I was just thinking of all the times you know, women have been accused of just gabbling away. One of the, the ways that they silence women in politics is by attacking their credibility, right? And I see that with all of the women candidates, most of them at least, right? With I think we have six women running for office. And you say in your action item section that to fight this, that women must fight for the credibility of others. How do we do that? Well, we have to monitor ourselves. And I'm going to tell something really embarrassing about myself. But I feel like it has to be out there that here I've written two books about feminism and I was at the uh, car repair shop for an oil change and uh, there was a woman behind the counter and I had a question about snow tires and I instinctively thought, no, I'll wait for a man to go, go behind the counter before I ask the question. I caught myself doing that. Of course, I'm horrified at that. But, you know, uh, both women and men dismiss women. Yeah. You know, I think what you just did is really important because I think one really important step in in solving this is admitting our own complicity. Right. And, you know, I often go back to the 20, 2008 election and I don't talk about this very often myself because it is embarrassing when we realize that we've been complicit in the system. But I have to go back and examine, you know, and I voted for Obama during the primary in 2008. And, you know, he obviously won the presidency and the nomination. And I have to go back and examine what was in my mind at the time. What stories was I telling myself about Hillary Clinton? And I remember one thing specifically. I remember during the 2008 debates when she was up there with all of the men and 
someone asked her a question, they said, you know, what do you make of them hating you because you're a woman? Right. And she said something like, they don't hate me because I'm a woman. You know, they hate me because I'm winning, which, you know, (laughs) that was a great line, but I don't, I don't know if it was completely true. I mean, part of the reason they hated the fact that she was winning was because she was winning and she was a woman. If she were winning and were a man, it would have been different. Right. But I remember watching all of those debates. I love debates. Right. And I remember thinking she won every single one. And if that's the case, if I felt that way, why didn't I vote for her? Well, she, I don't think she had as much charisma as Obama. And she he was yeah. charismatic, but, <laughs> but then that's sexist, well, right? I mean, I don't know. There are some charismatic women, too. But yeah, so is charisma a gender-based value or not? That's a good question. So as I point out in my book, her policy proposals received so little attention similar to the health insurance or the health reform effort she did in the 90s, where it was never taken seriously. I remember trying to search for articles, you know, fact-based articles about what the plan actually entailed. Instead, I found articles to criticize in your hairstyle or, you know, personal attacks on her. And it was very, very frustrating. So one of the reasons you mentioned that you wrote the book was to kind of align the goals of women who were involved in past feminist movements to the goals of women running for office now or women who are activists now. So what are you hoping people and readers glean from this book in relation to bridging those generational fights? Well, one of the reasons why I wrote the book was I wanted intergenerational work together. In the past, feminism and other um, activist movements have sometimes had generation splits. And I'm really, really hoping that this time with this new resurgence of feminism, that people would join together and not do age discrimination against each other. So hopefully these are, we'll see them as artificial barriers and uh, we'll unite together. Well, Gail Eukokas, thank you so much for joining me today and talking to me. And, you know, I think this is a really, really important book for our times, you know, to take the next step to now that we can recognize it, we can act on it now. Great. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help spread the word about the electorate, please leave us a five-star review and please ask your friends to subscribe. Please also support the electorate by following us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and that's at electorate. And until next time, keep up the good fight.